Welcome to the Green Minds Podcast, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations on climate change and sustainability. My name is Marie-Céline, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, we set our sights on a game-changing force, off-grid solar energy in Sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa concentrates 60% of the world's solar potential, yet around 600 million people do not have access to electricity. The International Energy Agency, in their 2023 World Energy Outlook report, stated that between 2019 and 2022, many African utility companies bore the costs for keeping energy affordable for users, contributing to high levels of debt. These circumstances really impeded grid extension projects. As a result, the number of people on the continent that gained electricity access via a grid connection or a mini-grid, dropped by 50% in 2022. However, this reversion was partially offset by robust growth in solar home system sales, which provide electricity to households without connection to electric grids. Sales of these systems surged past pre-pandemic levels last year, with strong growth in West and East Africa. According to the Global Industrial Group for Off-Grid Solar, Sales of solar home systems in this region rose by more than 50% in 2022. This introduction brings me to today's guest, Jean-Baptiste Nenoir. Jean-Baptiste is the co-founder of Kodo, a solar home system provider, at the forefront of off-grid solutions operating in Benin, Burkina Faso, and Ivory Coast. Jean-Baptiste holds a degree in telecommunications and an executive MBA from Essex Business School. After a couple of years in the telecom sector, he shifted to off-grid solar, which he'll tell you more about in a second. Jean-Baptiste, it's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. I give a very brief introduction of your journey, which I hope to be faithful, but would you like to give our listeners a brief explanation of your career and particularly what brought you to create Kodo? Okay, so your description of my background is very precise and, and very true, but it is very academic. And uh, maybe the, the fact that I started Kutu uh, seven years ago now come from uh, uh, different experiences. No, for sure the first one was during my uh, study while I was a student uh, in telecom. Um, I went for two months in uh, Burkina Faso to build uh, a school just 40 kilometers south of Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso. And while I was studying telecoms and having my first uh, uh, email uh, address and uh, my first surf on the internet back in the last century, just to tell you it was quite <laughs> a long, long time ago, but I was already on the internet at that time. I was one of the first students in France to explore the internet and to have access to internet. But still, I decided to go in Africa in summer 93, and then I was just 40 kilometers south of Ouagadougou, as I said, and in that area, there were no phone line, no grid, so no electricity, and, and no access to clean water. And I realized that for people living there, it was very difficult to uh, have access to social and economical development, given that those infrastructure were not built, and those services were not available. It was a real challenge for those young students to have access to other services, to have access to social and, and uh, economical development. 
So I came back to France to, to, to pursue my, my study and I continued to work in the telecom industry. Very interesting, very dynamic. And actually it was really the, 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 the revolution of the telecommunications with a lot of different players and also mobile phone technology arriving. That's why in 2003, when I decided to work in a French NGO in Somalia, I realized that even the real areas of Somalia, I could have access to mobile phones. Still, nobody had access to uh, electricity. There were no grid, of course, no water. I had to dig myself a well to have access to water. I had to install my first genset and my first solar panel, actually. Not very efficient, but uh, they could provide electricity, but uh, it was not very easy. But what was very surprising is that everyone around had a mobile phone. It was a, a very old-fashioned mobile phone with only a nine-digit nine mobile phone, only SMS and voice. But it was really a change in the life of the people because everybody could have discussions and communications with each other. So that's where I realized that technology could change the life of the people. Okay. And actually the technology I was uh, working on. So that was very interesting. I came back to France uh, after a couple of years in the NGO uh, area. I worked in Sudan and Kenya and Somalia. But I came back to France and I restarted, let's say, my career in the, in the telecommunications. I was working in the manufacturer side. And here again, I realized that technology was very important in the access to services in the area of development. I was working for an industrial provider of internet boxes you have at home. And what was very impressive is that we could provide to anyone in France a very small box who could provide access to telephone, to the phone line, to internet, and to TV. And that was a revolution because it was a very small box that 10 years ago used to have a full room of equipment. That technology could reduce this full room of equipment to a very small box usable by my grandmother. She was able to plug the box, it was plug and play, very easy, and she could call her grandson in the US for nothing because it was included in the monthly fees. Here again, technology changed the, the, the life of people. And that was really the telco revolution. Back in uh, 2010 and 2012, I was at ESSEC for an executive MBA. And one of the group of my MBA started an entrepreneurial project in rural electrification in Africa. It was not my own project, but as I was working in Africa for a couple of years, I decided to help them to understand what would be the market and also what would be the challenges. And I realized that the project was very interesting because it was on the energy sector and the energy revolution was arriving at that time. Thanks to the, the price of the solar panel going down, Thanks also to technology like mobile money that arrived in Kenya in 2007 that enabled micro transactions at no cost. Mobile money was invented there a long time before we have started to use Apple Pay here, for example. So it was very innovative in Africa and very important to uh, facilitate micropayments. But when you combine solar technology, mobile money, Machine-to-machine machine and fintech, you can realize that you have a lot of opportunity in the energy sector that can change the life of people because you can make available for anyone in Africa a very small installation with solar panel, batteries, 
and at the end of the day, access to electricity very, very simply and very quickly and in a profitable way as well. So when I realized that, I said, okay, now we just have to make it smart with communication, with data, and to start to deploy this solution in Africa. So I started the first company in Kenya in 2012. The different technology, it was a micro-hydro power plants and micro-grid. Uh, the impact was very strong, but very complex to set up. It was very good on paper and on Excel, but once you arrived to execution and operation, it, I realized that it was very complicated. Another thing is that at that time, the first efficient appliances like bulbs, lamps, and TV arrived. It was very good for the uh, uh, industry because with the same service, you, you consume 10 times less electricity than before. Very good for the industry, but not very good for operators because if you spend a lot of money to deploy a network that will cost a certain amount of money, unless you reduce the, 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 the revenue by 10, your business model is not working anymore. So I had to take that as an opportunity. How can I leverage this uh, new technology, this energy revolution to go further in the distribution of the infrastructure and going up to the customer premises with a solar panel on the roof, a box, and everything for a household, but in the house. So I had to find a partner and my co-founder, Fabrice, comes from the financing industry. He's also an engineer. He started as a telco engineer as well. I'm much more into management and working in Africa. Fabrice is very good in financing and it's very important in this kind of project. So complementarity here was mandatory for me to start Koto. Really, really interesting. Um, I can see that you have a very rich background, especially on the field with experiences in Kenya and Somalia. I'm really interested in what you said about how, you know, technology can change the life of people. So maybe we can delve into that and maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on what is your technology and what is your product and how you differentiate yourself from other off-grid solutions provider? And how did you learn from your experiences in Kenya as well with your first company? Yeah. So as you said, in, in Africa, 600 million people do not have access to electricity. Why? As I said, there is no infrastructure, no network, no grid. Okay. So one of the solutions is to create power plants off-grid and to deploy a mini-grid. That's a solution, uh, ideally with renewable energy, first because it's better for the planet, but also today it's often cheaper than fossil energy with a power plant. But there is another solution, and you go even further in the distribution of the infrastructure. You don't make a, a mini-grid on a mini-power plant. You go to a micro-power plant. Micro means at the scale of the house. So that's what we use at Koto. We have a solar panel the size of a kitchen table. We put it on the roof of the households. We have a little box in the house that manages the electricity to manage how the solar panel will charge a battery, for example, or will power a lamp or a TV or a fan or a fridge. Okay? So this is the technical solution for the energy. But now Koto has to be paid for this equipment. As the equipment is 
very, very expensive for their households. They cannot afford to pay cash. So they need to pay it step by step or pay as you go, as we say. They, they, they pay for one day, they use it for one day. After one day, it's off. But if they pay again, it starts again for one day. They can pay for one week, one month. It's really as they go, as they want. But now, how does it work? It works because we have the mobile money, as I said. We use this technology. The customer with his mobile phone, it just transfer very little amount of money. It will be around 30 cents up to one euro per day to pay uh, for the system, depending on the size of the system. If you have a fridge, TV, uh, fan, it goes up to 1.5 euro per day. The people, they will pay for three years. And after three years, they own the equipment and the equipment can last for 15 years. Basically, this is the technology uh, we, we provide. At Kutu, we are not the only one using this technology and deploying this model in Africa. There is a couple of other companies, maybe 10 of them in the continent. Usually, they provide smaller systems. The good thing with smaller systems is they, they might be more afford, affordable for the people. But at Koto, what we believe is that the service is less because if you have less solar panel, then you have less energy produced, then you have less energy stored, and then you can use less energy at the, at the household level. So we prefer to go on, a, let's say, high-end uh, solar home system and to provide a very good quality of service to our customers. We believe it fits, it's the, the future of the, of the solar home systems for the households to have a near-grid experience. It's very close to what you could have if you had access to the grid. I want to come back on something you mentioned, the pay-as-you-go solution for people to be able to afford your solar kits. And it's part of, you know, kind of a balancing act that many companies in sustainability fields have to play between impact and returns, making the solutions affordable while maximizing the impact. So I'm also interested in hearing what are the main impacts of Kodo? How do you measure them? How do you quantify them? Do you have some metrics for that? And what are your ambitions for that impact to grow? Okay, many questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so first, what are, what are the impacts from Kodo? Uh, first, as of today, after seven years, over 110,000 people have access now to electricity. Thanks to Koto, we can speak about CO2 metric ton avoided, uh, 8,000 metric tons avoided, but that's not very significant as I believe, because it's not the main impact. It's millions of hours of lighting for households and families who usually had no access to uh, lighting after 6 p.m. Between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. in the real areas in Africa, it's dark, total dark. The only way to have a light is maybe a candle or a, a solar lantern or a kerosene lantern. But the, the light is not very good. You can hardly read with that. At Koto, we provide lights like the one I have here. A very good example that we have at Koto uh, in Burkina Faso, most of our customers, they have outside of the house just a wall painted in black. And this wall is used to make the homework when they come back from school. They use a clay and do their homework in the light of this bulb. Without Koto, they could not do that. This is one of the impacts. But how do we measure? At Koto, we say that they're 100% digital. All the payments 
add-ons through mobile money. The communication between our IT platform and our systems is done over the internet, the machine-to-machine technologies. So everything is possible. We also have a feedback from our equipment. They have a SIM card and they measure the power produced, the power stored, where the power is sent. But also, uh, when the customer pays for a system, it's automatically activated. So having all this data is also good for the customer experience because it's seamless for them. We can understand the problem before the customer realizes he has a problem. Okay. So we measure a lot of things. Uh, we can measure all those data are uh, recorded in the, in the uh, Koto IT system. Uh, so for the impact, we can measure that. Or we also had a couple of companies who made impact study for Koto. And we learned a lot of very interesting things, like, for example, in Burkina Faso, 98% of our customers, they feel safer since they have the Koto system. Simply because at night, they have a light outside of their house that enlights the courtyard or just their belongings that are outside the house. So already this gives to the family and especially to the women a feeling of safety that is very important. But also we realized two weeks ago, I was in the microfinance European week and we were discussing about who are our customers. And we realized that at Koto, 80% of our customers are not addressed by MFI, microfinance institutions. Why? Because our customers, they are very often below the minimum revenue that MFI needs to start a credit scoring or to start lending to the people. We have also this uh, number, over 60% of our customers are below the poverty line, for example. And this is very important because the consumption of energy translates your ability to produce more or longer or more efficiently. So the more you consume energy, the more you produce or better or faster or longer. Okay. And the more you produce, usually, the more you generate revenues. Wealth and energy consumption at 100% correlated. The more you consume energy, the wealthier you are. The wealthier you are, the more you consume energy. We believe that we create a positive cycle. So you can open your outlet longer. You can study longer. You can start a little business. And then you create revenues. The more good revenues, the more you can pay for the system from Koto, but also you can improve your system. You can add the fridge, you can have a, add a fan, you can add TV, and so on and so forth. So really the goal of giving access to electricity is to create the conditions of the social and economical development. That makes the perfect transition for the next part of the podcast. Thank you, Jean-Baptiste. So now that we know a little bit more about Koto, I would want to broaden the scope of the discussion a little bit mm -hmm. to take stock of what is the development of solar energy in sub-Saharan Africa and to give our listeners kind of an idea of where things are. As you pointed out, you know, energy is absolutely crucial to development and wealth creation, and you set up conditions for education and safety. So how is electricity generated now in the countries in which you operate and what are some barriers to a wider grid connection in sub-Saharan Africa? Wow. 
Okay, so the, the, the energy sector and the, the, the challenge of the access to electricity is, in Africa is quite complex for several reasons. Today, power generation is not enough in Africa. It means that with the power plants that are developed there and with the grid that is already deployed there, you often have outage in many, many cities. Sometimes for uh, the, the full morning, you don't have electricity. Okay. So first, one of the challenges is to reinforce the, the, the production capacity, maybe to increase the number of uh, power plants, whether it's with fossil or uh, nuclear or renewable energy. This is very important. It must be uh, financed by states or by international financing institutions, the World Bank or European or African uh, Development Bank. So this is one of the solutions. And the grid extension as well is very important because it provide a lot of energy as we have, for example, in Europe, plants that are uh, powered by the, the grid or, or the, the national grid and the and big power plants. So this is very important for mass production, let's say, and to have a lot of power. Another solution is the mini grids and the, the mini power plants. It will address off-grid areas, usually uh, small towns or rural areas, but you need to have a density of population because otherwise you will have to deploy a grid that is very costly and your return on investment is really, really complicated to reach. You need to have someone that will consume a lot of energy. But as I said, thanks to energy efficiency, the level of consumption is not very high for the households. Okay, So many grids answer to part of the solution, but not all the segments. Uh, and then you have this third solution, the solar home systems that I just described. So for me, the challenges to develop access to electricity in Africa is to combine these three solutions, power production, grid extension, mini grids and mini power plants, and solar home systems. Technically, this is the challenge. But also there is another challenge is what business model or what regulation or what could be the price of each of them? Obviously, the power plants or the grid extension is usually financed by the government, by the states. It means either by international financing institutions, World Bank, European Bank, African Bank of Development, but also by the income collected by the governments. Okay, so this is a public sector. Okay, mini grids can be often public and private agreements. Part of the funds comes from the, the public sector, but also part of the funds to develop a mini grid and a, and, a, and a mini power plant comes from private sector as well. Okay, and the management of these mini grids will be hybrid, private and, and, and public sector. But for the SHS, most of the time it's one hundred percent private. It means that it's the households who will finance one hundred percent. I mean, will pay for his installation. It's financed by the company, Koto, for example, but at the end of the day, the, the system is paid by the households. So you see that poor households, they have to pay for their installation and the people living in the rural areas, they pay through their income, but the state is taking part, is financing it. So here again, she wants to have a smart solution, technical solution and a smart financing solution. We need, really need to have discussions all together to see how we can harmonize that and be smart regarding this, this challenge. Very, very interesting. And it also 
joins what one of our previous guests actually said in the podcast. So we, we received Josue Tanaka a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, who is the former head of energy efficiency and climate change activity at the EBRD. And he had some really interesting insights on financing resources for renewables for emerging markets. And he was saying that development of renewables requires a combination of both financing sources. So domestic finance, both public and private, and also external private finance. So you're saying that home solar systems would be more on the private side. So does that reflect maybe, you know, how Kodo developed, how you went about with your fundraises? Um, maybe you can talk us through that process. Yeah. How did that go? And like, which players were important also in development of Kodo? Today, Koto is financed through three sources of financing. First, it's equity, raised at the very beginning of the life of the company with business angels. First, the, the funders, usually, they, we put our money in the company, and then we have friends and family and business angels, venture funds who want to have often an impact, but also the opportunity to create companies like Koto to uh, deliver access to energy to millions of people in, in Africa, but also we raise debt. Today, this debt is very dedicated to access to electricity. So you have a couple of funds who are dedicated to access to electricity, whether it's solar home systems or mini grids or grid extension or whatever. And the third source of financing is grants. So it's not public money. It's not from the government. It can be from a development agency like MCA, for example, from the US or AECF. It's different Nordic funds who decided to invest in access to electricity, but it's grants. And it's not grants that they give at the very beginning of the project. It's called RBF, Resident-Based Financing. It means that you design your project. You say, for example, I will deploy 10,000 systems in Benin within the next three years, and you receive part of the grants when you reach a milestone, okay? So you're financed a posteriori of what you delivered. This is very helpful because having access to equity or debt is not always easy. And it's also really helping the companies like Koto to start a new market or to create a market even in a country. So when you come with this technology in the real areas, you have to convince the customer that the technology is good. It's always the same story with technology. If you buy a mobile phone with poor quality, it will not work. And then you can decide that this technology is not reliable. But the problem is not the technology, the problem is the quality of the product. Um, a new report from uh, the IEA, um, produced in partnership with the African Development Bank, found mm -hmm. that universal electricity access to Africans requires mm -hmm. around 22 billion annually from now mm -hmm. uh, until 2030. So do you think that we can meet this objective well, given interest rates, strong demographic growth? You know, are you optimistic? Um, I'm optimistic and realistic. <laughs> so sometimes I'm pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> there have to be uh, on the technical technology side, we have the answers. We know how we can solve the problem. There's no doubt about that. Um, we know also that the technology will evolve. Uh, we know also that the prices of the technology will go down. So there is a path for a business model that will be uh, profitable and make 
electricity accessible technically and financially to everyone in Africa. SDG 7 is to have access to energy for all by 2030. We already missed that. <laughs> this is for sure. In seven years, it's not possible. Just an example, SHS company like Koto and our competitors, despite all the efforts we've done since 10 years, I think we covered 10 or 20 millions of people. It's only 10 or 20 during the last 10 years. There is 600 million people. We just covered maybe 20 million people. So it's just a very small part of the problem. We can invest a lot in grid extension, but we also need to invest millions and millions in power generation. And this is where I think the vast, vast, vast majority of the, 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 the billions you just mentioned goes today. Okay. We need to have more discussions among the three solutions I just mentioned. Grid extension, mini grids, and solar home system. It's very complex to move from one model to a new one. The model we used to have in Europe is grid extension, power plants, and so on and so forth. It took decades to convince companies like EDF, for example, that solar home system in Europe could be a good solution. Today in France, many people decide to have a solar panel on the roof. And now EDF is very happy because they don't have to produce all the energy for everyone. These solutions are becoming more and more popular in Europe. And it will be the same in Africa. And sometimes it will be the only source of electricity for households. But this is where we need, you know, it's a transition. And it means that we have to understand the different challenges we can have. And also, as I said, it's based also on the business model, uh, the different business model we have. We have not just the same source of financing. We do not have the same constraints of operating. And we don't have the same uh, revenue neither because it's not regulated the same way. So that's where we need to have a lot of discussions to organize the solution. So I'm, where I'm optimistic, I said technology and uh, pessimistic, we will not reach the goal by 2030, for sure. And realistic, we need to work all together. I just want to pick up on that, what you said about there are huge challenges. Obviously, it's a real transition that requires infrastructure and funding. And you mentioned that we didn't have the same regulation. So you were saying that we won't meet the objectives by 2030. What is the role of countries and public policies in that? Um, do you see that maybe it's a priority in public spending? Is there tax incentives or, you know, mechanism that really foster an environment for businesses like Kuro? In the different countries where we operate, Burkina Faso and Benin, for example, we have tax exemption for import mm -hmm. or for our solar equipment. This is very important for us because then we can decrease the cost uh, for the end customer that enable more people to have access to electricity. As I said, the more you have access to electricity, the more you can produce, the more you can create value. And this is a benefit for everyone in the country. And I think most of the governments, they understood that. And this is very good. And also, as all our payments are done through mobile money, everything is traceable. And we can be very transparent with the government. So I think that for that, we have a very good collaboration with government. What can be very tricky is when uh, the government decides to subsidize solar home systems. 
for example. It cannot last forever, or it's very complicated because it's millions and millions of people to subsidize. Okay. So when you start to subsidize a, a product, what happens when you stop the subsidy? Maybe you can kill the market with that because people will wait for another subsidy to start again the market. So it's better, I think, to help the company to reinforce their business model by reducing taxes to create value from uh, the base of the pyramid, actually. And to help this base of the pyramid to increase their revenue, to go over the poverty line and to overall increase the, 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 the global revenue of the population. And this is what we see really at Coton. As I said, uh, we have 40% of our customers who generate revenues. They have the Coton solution. Very, very interesting to have your take on public policy. Thank you so much for your insights. As a final question, you know that I'm part of the Master's in Climate Change Management and Finance at Imperial College. So I'm part of a cohort of 160 students who are all motivated by climate and many of them would potentially like to start their company. So you've obviously created a very impactful and successful business. Do you have any career advice for our fellow climate entrepreneurs listening? First, I would say there is no age to start an entrepreneurship. You can start very young. You can start after a couple of years of experience. Even after 20 years of experience, you can start a company. Let's say you, when you're young, you have a lot of energy. You have, let's say, nothing to lose. So you, you can really test and try a lot of things. When you order, you have things to lose. It's, you can, can seem more complicated, but you have experience. And uh, so first, no age to start. You can start whenever you want. It will be always a, a great journey and a, a, a lot of joy and a lot of emotions. But I think the most important is really the team. What kind of people you will gather around you? Because it's really about teamwork and the dedication to your project and to your company, because very soon it will not be a project, but a real company. I think it's the most important, you know, what I'm proud of today, it's really the people I'm working with. Today we have 300 people working for Koto in Africa, and having created this team, that's, that's great. That's really what I'm proud of, because it's really those people um, who create this impact, actually and make what Koto is today. It starts with the funders or the, you know, the first people coming in is very, very important. So you need to know yourself and to know your, where you're good at and where you are very bad at as well. <laughs> <laughs> and to share that with your co-founders. I think it's very complex to give advice because I think, I mean, every venture is different. Everybody will face different challenges. But if you, to be sure that you will overcome those challenges, you need to have different competencies. And this is uh, all about people. It's all, uh, it's all about the team. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Jean-Baptiste. Um, I think it's a beautiful message to wrap this podcast. Um, it's been a pleasure discussing with you and learning from your um, very rich experience. Uh, and I look forward to witnessing the impact of Kodo and the next steps um, of your development. So thank you so much, uh, Jean-Baptiste. And to- Thank you for waiting me, huh? <laughs> no, no problem, it was a pleasure. And to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode 
um, as much as I enjoyed creating it with Jean-Baptiste. If you'd like to hear more insights, don't forget to subscribe to the Imperial Business Podcast. And if you have any suggestions or if you know the perfect guest for us to interview, please drop us a message at podcast.greenminds at imperial.com. Thank you so much for listening and see you soon.